Father, what a great mystery this is, that now, through Christ, God indeed is with us. Not only with us, but for us. This is cause for great hope, great celebration, great thankfulness. We pray that as indeed we have lifted our voices today and now as we open our hearts to your word, that your spirit would do an unusual work on this Christmas Eve morning, that we would recognize truths that we've never learned, that we would remember truths that we've forgotten, and that like the wise man, we would assure that we are not forgetful hearers, but faithful doers of the word. We yield ourselves to your Holy Spirit through the word this morning. We'd ask that you would do a holy work in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. And Merry Christmas Eve, or as I like to say, Happy Christmas. All those British detective dramas have gotten me, I say Happy Christmas now, instead of Merry Christmas, because I guess that's the way they say it over there. What a great day it is. What a great opportunity to be together with God's people and to sing and to worship and to fellowship and to just have a wonderful time together reminding ourselves what this is really about. You've perhaps heard the question before, where are you from? Or what's your story? If you've ever spent any time in the American South, here's the way they say it, who are your people? They say, who are your people? And what they mean by that is, what's your background? What's your story? Where have you come from? What's your understanding of who you are? Christmas is Jesus' story, through and through. Christmas reveals where he's from. Christmas reveals who are his people, what he's really about. And one of the ways this works in the Bible is through genealogies. Now, genealogies are often ignored or skimmed over in your Bible reading. Often they are, they are just skipped altogether. But genealogies in the ancient Near East and in our Bible, genealogies serve rich and important purposes. Because in the genealogies, the genealogies we have in the Older Testament and the genealogies we're going to consider this morning in Matthew and Luke, in those texts, first of all, there is rich history added. Genealogies also gave people a sense of their identity. That goes back to that earlier question, who are your people? We understand ourselves based on our heritage, based on our family, based on where we've come from, to the best of our ability. Genealogies also give a sense of credibility and credentialing, especially in the ancient world. In the culture, in the system, based on your ancestors, that was, in a sense, a statement of what was expected of you, of, of how high you could rise, be that right or wrong, fair or unfair. That's often the way it worked. So genealogies added history and a sense of identity, also a sense of credentialing, especially in those ancient cultures. Today, I want to spend our time together looking at the two detailed genealogies we have of Jesus in the New Testament. 
and their surprising implications for us today, 2,000 years later. Now, I suppose if I had really clarified that on Christmas Eve morning, we're going to work through the genealogies of the New Testament, a bunch of you might not be here. I don't know. But I hope that you'll see that there are great implications and applications to these passages that we're going to consider today. So open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the New Testament. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1025, Matthew chapter 1. And also through the sermon, we're going to refer to Luke 3. You won't need to turn there unless you prefer to. So we're in Matthew 1 and also Luke 3 this morning. Now, if you've been here as part of Calvary Baptist, at least in the English congregation, you know that we've been having what we've called an Old Testament Christmas. So we looked at the garden, and we looked at the, at the promise of the patriarchs, and we looked last week at the prophecies from Isaiah. And so some of you, perhaps you're wondering, wait a minute, an Old Testament Christmas. In fact, if you use the sermon notes up at the top of the page, it says an Old Testament Christmas. But we're in Matthew and Luke today. Don't, you don't need to send me an email to remind me that I messed up, all right? Because essentially, here at the beginning of Jesus' story, the authors of the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, go back into what we call the Old Testament. The genealogies basically cover the Old Testament. And so in a sense, even though the texts are found in the New Testament, we're still having an Old Testament Christmas here at Calvary this year. And these two genealogies, they are not exhaustive. You won't find every name from the Old Testament in these genealogies. They are instead selective and they are representative. And as such, the way the Holy Spirit designed it and the way the human authors wrote it, what we're going to find is that they are representative of the work of God under what we call the Old Covenant in what we call the Old Testament, especially in the nation of Israel. Two genealogies, Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Now, there are some differences between them. Let me show you the differences. Luke, he begins with the nativity, the birth of Jesus, and he works backwards. He works backwards to King David and then all the way to Abraham until he finally lands with Adam in the garden in what we know as Genesis 1 through 3. And so Luke works backwards from the nativity. On the other hand, Matthew starts with Abraham, the call of God to, to the unique people of Israel, and works forward through the life of King David, and then he ends with the nativity. So it's a different take. It's a different perspective. It, in a sense, it's a different overview. And that's what we find. So look in your Bibles, and bear with me if you're uncomfortable with this, but we want to read the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're going to keep scoring how many times I mispronounce a word, and that's fine too. A name. There are plenty of names here, all right? Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the son of Isaac, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and 
Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, in other words, Bathsheba. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asap, and Asap, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers. By the way, we're going to come back to Jeconiah before we're through. Just note that. At the time of the deportation to Babylon, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil, and Sheatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abhud, and Abiod the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Ehud, and Ehud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Metan, and Metan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The genealogy of the Lord Jesus. This is his background. These are his people. And implied, if you know anything about Old Testament history, implied in that genealogy there are plenty of family secrets. They're not unpacked. They're not dealt with, but they're there. Family secrets in the lineage of Jesus. These are his people, and this is his story. Now, let me pause for just a moment. What difference does any of this make? Does any of it matter? Well, it matters because of this. This matters because... Jesus matters. In fact, and here's the bold statement, and if you're a guest this morning, this might strike you as audacious, but I want to remind you, Jesus matters most of all. It was C.S. Lewis who said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I want to challenge you this morning, as boldly as I can, if your view of Christianity is it's just an add-on, it's just a good thing that, that we'll give some attention to, it's part of a well-rounded life, you've missed the message of Christianity. Jesus matters. And what we're going to find this morning as we unpack these genealogies is we're going to find that the identity of Jesus matters in your life and my life literally every single moment of every day. And as you listen, hopefully, if you'll open your heart, and as you leave and as you celebrate today and tomorrow, and as you go about finally closing out this year and you look at a new year, my prayer and my desire for you is that you recognize that nothing matters more than your relationship with Jesus Christ, and how you understand this one who was indeed born in a manger 2,000 years ago, 
who lived a perfect life, who died a bloody death, and then conquered death in resurrection. Christianity could not be more important in our troubled world and in our often troubled lives. That's the reason we're here. So I'm going to show you this morning, fairly briefly, four things that we find in the genealogies of Jesus, what his family tree reveals about him. The first thing I want to show you is this. His family tree reveals that he really is our creator. He really is our creator. That is, Jesus Christ indeed is divine. In Luke, the genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, Adam being a son of God. And in a sense, this bookends two unique sons of God. Adam, the original son of God, Paul calls him the first Adam, but then Paul also calls Jesus, remember what he says? Jesus is the second Adam. And so you have a sense in which there's something unique about this one who is born. But the language especially shows us this. Look again in Matthew 1. For instance, you'll notice I misread it when I started, and I didn't do that on purpose, but perhaps you caught it. It says, for example, in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. The King James, if some of us remember being raised on the King James, Abraham, what's it say? Begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. That's very specific language, and it is repeated over and over and over and over again until you get down to chapter 1, verse 16. Look at it. And there it says, instead of Jacob, the father of Joseph, who begat Jesus, it doesn't say that, does it? It says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now, if that's all we had, you would think, that's odd, the way that's worded. But then we have the story, following in Matthew 1, of the angel who comes to Joseph and says, this is a miraculous birth. Mary, who is a virgin, nevertheless, is, is going to give birth to a child and you have this unique divine aspect of Jesus' earthly identity that he is not only man, but he is God in flesh. You see this also in the way that Luke describes it. We won't have you turn there, but on the screen you'll see Luke 3.23. Listen to the way Luke words it. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now why does it say that? Because in a sense, there's a sense in which Jesus wasn't the son of Joseph. He was only the adoptive son of Joseph. He was virgin born, and as such, he was God in flesh. Where do we get that? Well, for example, in one of the other brief genealogies in the New Testament, John chapter 1. You remember these words? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God encamped with humanity. God somehow enfleshed himself in human existence did not in any way change from being the eternal God, the Word, in the mystery of the Trinity, and yet at the same time took upon himself a human nature and a human body, 
two natures, and the theologians have struggled with this for 2,000 years, but two natures that are not mixed together, but nevertheless are absolutely united in one person. Jesus is divine. Now, let me show, show you why I think that's important. Because if our only hope is in humanity, if our only hope is essentially some kind of exalted humanism, well, let me just ask you, how's that working out for us? Left to ourselves, how will we ever get out of this mess that we're in? But Christmas assures us that we've been visited, and we've been visited by God himself. Jesus really is our creator. He really is divine. The second thing you see in these genealogies is that he really is our brother. He's not just our creator, but he's also our brother. Now, listen carefully. Something, I'm going to say something really profound. All of these names in the genealogies, they're human. I don't see any of you writing that down. I thought that was one of the most profound things I would say this morning. Every one of the names, other than the name of Jesus, every one of the names is a human name. And don't miss the importance of that. Jesus is now part of this family. He's part of this human family. This is this mystery that I'm not going to be able to explain to you this morning, but the Bible presents it without qualification. That Jesus somehow, though he was born, conceived in the womb of a virgin, and born 2,000 years ago as a human, he at the very same time is the eternal God, but the eternal God is now linked with us in our humanity. He's part of our family. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's the incarnation. He's our brother now. And I could spend the rest of the morning talking about all the implications and what that means for us. It means he knows our frailties. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our temptations, though he never yielded to temptation. Nevertheless, the New Testament teaches us that he had a human experience that was not significantly different than ours, other than the fact that he was completely and totally holy. He really is our brother. And he remains, even today and forever, our brother. However we understand heaven and the mysteries of the new heaven and the new earth, Jesus will forever be not just the divine creator, but also will forever be our brother. And what that means is that Christmas and all of these words we sing and, and all of the giving of, of relationships and in the giving in relationships and the love we express, all of it goes back to and is rooted in the fact that the God of creation stooped to identify with you. And with me. He's our creator, but he's also our brother. What this means is that the God of creation has identified with us. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, great and unknown, noble and not so much. That's what you find in these genealogies. You have all of these names. There's a universality here. And even though Matthew, it's astonishing because Matthew, the whole 
I, I should say the tack, the approach that Matthew takes in his gospel is he's highlighting Jesus as the Jewish king and Jewish Messiah. But even in the genealogy, he brings in these Gentiles. He, he brings in people that technically were outside the covenant under what we call the Old Testament. And yet, nevertheless, they're part of the genealogy of Jesus. There's a universality to all of this. And that really does show us the broad, universal, equal standing that we all have before the Creator. And what it speaks to is His unspeakable love and the unbelievable graciousness. Let me just remind you, God didn't have to do this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten. He wasn't forced to do this. God didn't find himself in a corner and think, how can I get out of this problem? God initiated this plan that though indeed Jesus stayed and remained and remains today, creator and Lord and God, he also is our brother in humanity. And there's a great encouragement here. Martin Luther said it this way, if Christ had arrived with trumpets and lain in a cradle of gold, his birth would have been a splendid affair, but it would be no comfort to me. It would be no comfort to me. But that's not how Jesus came. He came identifying with us. He really is our brother. He really is our creator. But also, he really is our king. He really is our king. In, in both Luke and Matthew, King David is the central character of the genealogy, the central character of Jesus' family tree. Uh, look with me again in Matthew 1. You see it, for example, in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Go down to verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And look down at verse 17. So the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and then David to Babylon 14, etc. David is the central character of the genealogies. And you find the same thing in the book of Luke, chapter 3, because there we read this. There's the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse at the center of the genealogies. Now listen carefully. Son of David, like you read in Luke 3, son of David is basically a kingdom title. And that's the issue. But there is a striking variance between the two lists. I'm not going to go into all those details this morning, but you read the genealogy in Matthew, and then if you go read the genealogy in Luke 3, you find that they diverge. It's like you have the same family tree, and then all of a sudden, right after David, it's like there's two branches, one in Matthew 1 and another one in Luke chapter 3. And this has to do, listen carefully, I'll try to do this as clearly and as quickly as possible. This has to do with the nature of Jesus as the king, the son of David. Because in Matthew, this is likely our understanding. This is likely the explanation of this. In Matthew, it's likely Jesus' legal rights to David's throne that are traced through his adoptive father, Joseph. Because this line in Matthew, remember that name I pointed out to you in verse 12, Je Jeconiah. Jeconiah was just one of the kings, and he was one of the members of the line from David on down to Joseph. 
But Jeconiah had a problem. We find it in the Old Testament. Uh, it kind of is hidden away in Jeremiah chapter 22. But let me show you this verse. Thus says Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, write this man, and the man is Kaniah, which is another name for Jeconiah, write this man down as childless, even though he had children. It's consider him childless. A man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Jeconiah's rule was so wicked and so evil that God's judgment came upon him, and God also additionally said, your descendants will have no part in the eternal throne of David, your father. There was a moral disqualification there. And Joseph is in that line. And so Joseph is in the, the line of David through Jeconiah, but it's been disqualified in the sense of any kind of moral claim. So here's what you've got. You've got, you've got Joseph and his family being able to claim we're in the line of David. We have legal right, but according to the prophet, because of moral failure, we have no moral right. Jesus' adoption by Joseph it assured his legal claim as a son of David. But Luke, the genealogy is different. Luke diverges and goes through Nathan, and it, therefore it avoids this Jeremiah 22 curse. And in Luke, we have the physical claim to David's throne traced through Mary. So Jesus' literal physical descent through, what is it? It's a virgin birth. So there's no father involved. There's no father from the line that included Jeconiah that would have disqualified morally the son of Mary, to be on the throne. So legally, as an adoptive son, he could still claim that he was a son of David, but physically he was from this protected line, if you want to say it that way. And this physical claim, through the virgin birth, has no physical connection to Joseph, and it assured the physical claim to the kingdom. So Jesus, by physical lineage, virgin born of Mary, he was physically qualified to be the king of Israel. And by legal lineage, adoptive, uh, the adoptive son of Joseph, he was no less qualified legally to be in the kingly line. Uh, if that's the explanation, it seems helpful. But the point is this. The primary point, listen carefully. Jesus was a king. He had qualifications to take a throne that the Bible promises will be a forever throne. That's the point. Jesus has the right to sit on David's throne, and David's throne, according to the Old Testament and the New, David's throne is forever. Now, what are we saying? We're saying that even today, Jesus is the king. He's not just creator. He's not just our brother, but he's the king. But this king talk... It makes most of us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because it implies authority and sovereignty. This is no figurehead. This is not like across the pond where you have the crown and, and, and they, they are all into the idea of the monarchy, but it doesn't ultimately have any real say in the lives of people. No, the king has authority. There's true sovereignty and authority in Jesus and the problem is we have rebellion that's dialed into our very DNA. We're bent on being our own sovereign, right? 
We're, we're bent to choose our own independence. We don't want anyone ruling over us. That's not just a problem as Americans, but that's a problem of, as sinners. We want no one ruling over us. This is the nature of rebellion. It's the nature of sin. It's the idea nobody can really tell me what to do. Nobody can really tell me how to live. We're drawn to that. And you know, I know you've heard dozens of times before, none of us had to sit down and teach that attitude to our children when they were young, did we? None of us had to teach our children that they were the center of the universe. They came out of the womb believing that. And that's the nature of rebellion against God. The New Testament makes that clear, that we are born in our sin, that we, we come out guilty. And so we are by nature sinners. We are by nature rebels. We want our own way. And sometimes that rebellion shows up in, in drastic and evil and perverted ways. But I want to tell you that sometimes that rebellion shows up in good, moral, upstanding performance where I'm keeping all the rules and I'm going to make myself acceptable with God. And both approaches are rebellion against the God of heaven. Who says there's none righteous. No, not one. We have a king. And the sooner we acknowledge that, the better off we are. But we don't like to acknowledge it. We have this built-in rebellion. And that's the reason that this last point is so glorious. Because Jesus really is our creator. He really is our brother. He really is our king. Gladly, he really is our Savior. He really is our Savior. You look in Matthew chapter 1, and much has been made about the inclusion of four women, four women that are in this genealogy, who are notorious in either their background or in their sin. Tamar, from the book of Genesis, who's a harlot. Rahab, from the book of Joshua, who's a harlot and a Canaanite. Ruth, who's a Gentile, a Moabitess. And then you have the story of Bathsheba and her sin with King David. And much has been made about that. It is unusual that women are included in the genealogy. But newsflash for you. None of the men in this genealogy are perfect. Ladies, you can all say amen. Every name is a sinner. Every name is one who needed forgiveness. Every name is one who had the same rebellion that we've just talked about. Every single representation in the list, the, the family tree of Jesus, think about this, the family tree of Jesus is filled with sinners. There is no exception. Think about them. Adam, who failed to obey and failed his wife and participated in the original, the first sin. Noah, who was so faithful that he built an ark, and yet he failed to shepherd his sons well. Abraham, if you've studied the story of Abraham, it is the story of faithfulness and one who is a friend of God, and yet also moral failure after moral failure. You have David, you have Solomon, you have so many other names here. 
this list, this family tree is filled with sinners just like your family tree and just like mine. In fact, if you look at the list again, it, it essentially is a summary of the Old Testament. And what does the Old Testament show us? That God's people persistently over and over again fail to live up to his call, fail to live up to his covenant. And yet God was faithful and forgiving. There are very few heroes. There are a lot of sinners. All sinners. Jesus really is our Savior. And that's where we circle back to why this is important. That's where we come back around to where we started. The reason we spend time this morning looking at an odd list of names that are in the Bible. But they're here for a reason. And they show us that Jesus, the one whose birth we acknowledge over these days, that Jesus is really our creator and really our brother and really our king, but he's also really our savior. And that's the importance because listen carefully, we didn't primarily need an example and we didn't primarily need a teacher and we didn't need a physical healer and we surely did not need a therapist. We needed a rescuer, every single one of us. And every single one from these genealogies needed someone to come and who would, listen carefully, they needed, as we need, someone to stand in between the absolute holiness and judgment of God and our own sin. And this is who Jesus was and is. This is the reason his message is so glorious. This is the, listen, do not be confused and diverted by the sentimentality of a baby in a manger. It's a wonderful story. It has great drama. We will celebrate it this evening and mark it this evening as we worship. But the whole point is not a baby in a manger. It's a Savior on a cross. We didn't need a baby in a manger. We needed a Savior to rescue us from our guilt. We needed someone to stand in our place. We needed a sacrifice adequate. We needed a sacrifice that truly was in our place, therefore he's our brother. As our brother, he could stand in our place. But his sacrifice had to be worth sufficient in order to cover our sins and the sins of the world. And therefore, it was Jesus, the divine one, the ultimate offering. Like every single one of them, we need a rescuer. We need a savior. And this is the purpose of it all. Please forgive the cliche. This is the reason for the season. We already noted Hebrews 2. Let me flesh that out some more for you. It says, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and make propitiation for the sins of the people. And you flesh that out more in the book of Hebrews and you look at what the Bible teaches and we find that Jesus wasn't just the high priest, he was also what? The sacrifice. He really is our Savior. So what does your family tree look like? Who are your people? What's your story? How many 
ancestors do you have that you wouldn't want to tell their story in polite conversation? How many of us? How many of us have sins and failures that we hope never come up again? That we don't want other people to know? The Christmas message, the message of the incarnation is that our creator became our brother and saved us as our rescuer and now is our king. That's what this is all about. And that's why Christmas is a big deal. And that's the reason we should celebrate. What about your family tree? What about your own heart and life? I don't know the details of yours. I know mine. And I know that somewhere something's gone wrong along the way. That's the nature of this broken world. There's brokenness everywhere. And when we say brokenness here, we recognize and acknowledge that the reason there's brokenness is because there's rebellion. It's not just an accident. It's because we're rebels. We want our own way. There's brokenness and rebellion everywhere. Self-will. There's a term in the Bible for it. It's called sin. Sin. Pervasive. This is the problem. But the gospel is the answer, the good news. The angel said to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. The angel said to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy. Unto you is born a Savior. This is the gospel. And it's not just, oh, listen carefully to me this morning, friends. It's not just a truth to file away as information about a holiday. The call is individually in your life, in my life, that we acknowledge our guilt and our sin and we humble ourselves and we put our hope and faith in the only source for forgiveness in Jesus, who's our creator and also our brother and our rescuer, who died for our sins, who took our place. This is the gospel. And you may sing Christmas songs and you may know the story and you may be inspired by the story in the life of Jesus, all of that is fine and good. But if you've never in a real and personal way put your hope and faith in Jesus as creator and brother and rescuer and king, I call you to do so today. We talk about giving gifts. What a glorious gift that is to receive the gift of eternal life because your sins are now forgiven when you put your hope and faith in Jesus. If we can help you with that, we would love to do so. We would love to counsel you. Come let us know at the close of the service. Christmas assures us that we have a brother and we have a king because we have a God who is also our Savior. And that's your Christmas takeaway this morning. Through the gospel, Christmas becomes our story. Who are your people? 
Matthew 1, Luke 3, people who are sinners, who are made right with God through Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, Christmas becomes our story. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the glorious promise of the gospel. I thank you, Father, that we're not left with just Christmas. I thank you, Father, that we move on to the wonder of the crucifixion and the glory of the resurrection. So help us as we worship right now, as we spend this day, as we gather this evening, as we acknowledge tomorrow with family and friends, or perhaps we're alone, but for those of us that are in Christ, we're never really alone. I pray that we would be once again in a new and a fresh way. I pray that we would be overwhelmed with the wonder that the God of the universe, the creator, has become our brother And he laid down his life for our guilt and sins to be our rescuer, our savior. And he remains our king. Father, help us keep these truths in the front of our hearts and minds as we sing songs and as we give gifts and as we enjoy food. Help us not just in a Christmas season, but as we close out a year and as we look at a new year that is uncertain, has all kinds of darkness and concerns, if not fears, for this crazy world and all of the chaos in it. May we enter that new year with a firm confidence that's rooted in this good news of great joy because there was born for us a Savior. In Jesus' glorious name we pray, amen.